Hi, I'm Mark. Welcome to Talk to the Bands, the podcast that is passionate about contemporary music. Our guest this week is a UK musician who started out in 1977 playing guitar in a band called The Vandals with Alison Moyer. He went on to form several bands with Vince Clark, including The Plan and the band The French Look, which also featured Martin Gorff and Depeche Mode. In 1982, he went solo and recorded the album The Peter Pan Effect, which included the single The Face of Dorian Gray. A warm welcome to Robert Marlowe. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. Lovely to meet you finally. Can we start by talking about the Vandals and Alison Moye? The Vandals was a band which Alison and her two sort of girlfriends at school um, got together. I say they got, got together a band. Actually, what they used to do was go around to the subways of Basildon, scroll up their name, the Vandals, and yeah, just sing together. They were a bit of an a cappella group, really. Anyway, come 1978 or something, I was at school. And Alison came up to me on the stairwell between classes. She was in the year above me and said, you play guitar, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, a bit. She said, well, we've got a gig on Saturday and you're in. So I became the first male member of the Vandals. I think I learned some of the chords to Alison's songs. And we just went, as the spirit of all things punk, just stood up on stage and went, one, two, three, four, and got on with it, you know. And we used to play around at... Um, various youth clubs around Basildon, uh, Woodlands Youth Club in particular. And, yeah, we, I mean, I think we were together for about nearly a year, which is a, in, in those days was an amazing amount of time to be in a band. We were veterans by then. As the way of all things, it was a shambolic thing and it kind of fell apart. But, no, it was, it was great fun. And it, it was a real baptism of fire into the world of, of music. And that's when I, I kind of caught the bug that that's what I really wanted to do. Uh, uh, become a musician. You were then in a band with Vince Clark called The Plan? Yeah, that was quite, well, it was a, a very short-lived band. I was I was in a punk band in the late 70s, uh, which we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to later on. But anyway, um, the drummer in that band was a guy called Paul Langwith, and his father owned a blasting shop. And we used to rehearse next door to that in a rehearsal studio, in the plan, Vince was playing guitar. I was playing keyboards. There was Perry Bermonti, who later went on to become a member of The Cure. He played bass and Paul, like I say, on, on drums. But it was quite hilarious because basically next door, the sandblasting was going on and this fine film of, of dust would permeate through the studio. And, and all of us, I mean, it's a bit like now what's going on with COVID. I mean, basically, we would all have to wear masks <laughs> over our faces. And so you'd be singing into this thing with a, with a scarf over your face. But yeah, no, that was actually very, very interesting sounding band. But unfortunately, our first gig, we were due to play on the first of the first 1980s, beginning of the new decade, in the club just down the road here in Lee. And unfortunately, it was a big punch up the week before and the gig was aborted and then the band just fell apart. <laughs> you then went on to form a band called French Look with Martin Gore and Paul Redmond. When was that? Well, that was very much out on the back of the whole futurist electronic scene that was, that was burgeoning. And Paul Redmond, kind of the ace face on the Basildon scene in those days, 
been to Blitz. And when I found out he had a synthesizer, it made him even more attractive as a person to rope into the band. Paul had lots of lots of charisma, but actually couldn't play very well. So I then got my friend Martin, Martin Gore, to come in. And basically, we kind of ran in parallel to Depeche Mode. So Martin was playing in both bands, and there was a bit of a bust-up between Vince and I because there was some rivalry about who had the rights to Martin Gore, if you like. And this ended up with us playing a gig together, the two bands, at my old school, Nicholas Comprehensive. Basically, we were accused of fiddling with their um, equipment during the changeover. It was a complete and utter travesty. Anyway, Vince and I ended up not talking for like two weeks or something, which is the longest we've ever fallen out in our in our long relationship. But in the end, it all worked out okay. Martin became a member of Interpeche Mode. And that, as they say, is history. Shortly after that, you were in another band called Film Noir? Yeah, that was, that was shortly after that. That was kind of, I went back to more guitar-based things, whereas French Look was exclusively synthesizers. Uh, and I went back to playing guitar. I drafted in Perry again on bass, and a guy whose first name was Alan was a keyboard player. He had a, an old MS-10, a Korg MS-10 synthesizer. Yeah, and we uh, supported Depeche Mode on their triumphant homecoming gig at Rackhells in Basildon, uh, along with uh, other support band was uh, Blamange. I bet that gig was incredible. That was fantastic. I mean, that was a really big audience. It was, like I said, it was their triumphant homecoming gig, and it was mad. It was Screaming Girls and all of that. It was just when I think they'd had two hit records, uh, Dreaming of Me and New Life, I believe. And yeah, it was really, really was phenomenal. People were queuing all the way around, all the way around the bus station in Basildon. <laughs> Can we talk about recording the Peter Pan effect with Vince Clark? Uh, a year or two after the Depeche Mode gig, Vince was still living in Basildon, and I kept, I kept saying to him, "Look, you know, get me into the studio. I need some studio time. I've got these ideas for songs and everything." He said, "When it uh, becomes available, I will try and do that." Anyway, I kept on him and on him, and eventually he said, okay, yeah, look, I've booked you in for next Wednesday. So off I went to um, Blackwing Studios in Suffolk, which is an old church there where Vince had recorded with Depeche Mode and Yazoo and various other things. I'd already demoed at his flat on a four-track studio, a song called The Face of Dorian Gray, and we went to Blackwing, and basically that one day turned into kind of a three-week recording stint. And at the end of it, we had, you know, an A-side, a B-side, 12-inch mixes uh, and the whole thing. So, and, and it sounded really good, I thought. And so Vince said, well, this is mad. We've spent all this time and money. We might as well try and tout it around. And that's what he did. He went around, he got some A&R people and basically it was picked up by uh, RCA Records. They offered Vince and, and Eric, Eric Radcliffe, a distribution deal. So the, the record came out on Vince and Eric's Reset Records, which is a, an independent label but distributed by a major company. Anyway, we did, we, we recorded an album, uh, albums worth of material, but unfortunately, due to the fickle world of rock and roll, um, there were no real significant hits in the first run-through of it sort of thing. And as a consequence, the, the album was basically shelved by RCA and, and never saw the light of day. Until 1999, 
when I got a phone call completely out of the blue from Vince saying that our publisher, Rod, had been to a European music thing, uh, Medium, I think it was called, and uh, found a, a small Swedish label who wanted to put the record out, which is what happened. I mean, considering it was recorded in the summer of 1982, and this is 1999, you can imagine how shocked. All I had was a cassette of it. But apparently they'd managed to un- unearth the masters, which were in the bell tower of the church at Blackwing. And yeah, yeah they remastered it at um, the recording studio in Stockholm where Abba used to record. So that was all very exciting. And you can imagine my absolute shock when I finally held a CD in my hand of, of that recording. And also that I was asked to go out and promote the album there. And I went over with my friend Gary. Gary and I uh, recently started working together. And we went over there to Helsingborg in southern Sweden in the, the end of 1999. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, there were young people there. Because Sweden has a, a, quite a strong electronic music following. And... I was just amazed. People knew the, the words to what they'd only probably have had on on single, maybe. Uh, there was a distribution deal in Sweden back in the day. And, yeah, and they knew the words. I mean, I, I was absolutely blown away. It was really a highlight of my life, you know. You mentioned Eric when you were talking about Blackwing Studios. Yeah. Can you tell us about your time with Eric Radcliffe? Because he's got such a great reputation. Eric was a real character. A real, he reminded me of Charlie Drake, the comedian. <laughs> he had a, he's from Gravesend. He's how he lived with at the time with his mum uh, in Gravesend, and he was a real eccentric, incredibly talented, uh, multi instrumentalist. He played very, very mean guitar, and he had counted amongst his friends some real luminaries of the rock. Uh, I think Dan McCafferty from Nazareth, I think that was one of his, his best mates. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he was a real character. And I remember going, staying over at his house once. We were recording there, recording demos at his mum's place. And he took me to this club. He said, oh, let's go out. I'll finish going out and having a late night drink. Sure, do you want to come, Rob? And we went to this club called the Grove Club, which was basically somebody's house. It was like a Hacienda style kind of 70s and it was run by these two old ladies I seem to remember and you knocked the door and it was almost like a job sent me. And um, yeah, in, in you went and they had like domestic fridges and you bought, you know, cans of lager and you were basically in in, in a, a semi-detached suburban house in the middle of Grove's End. Most bizarre but but very interesting. And yeah, Eric was a real fantastic character and a brilliant engineer and, and producer. You said earlier, Eric also worked with Depeche Mode and Yazoo? Yeah. He worked with, well, yeah, Depeche Mode. Basically, Eric worked with Daniel Miller uh, from Mute from the very earlier. So he did the Silicon Teens, he did the Normal. So basically, yeah, I mean, Eric was really one for experimenting. I mean, it was like a kind of mad scientist lab, his studio. There was retort stands and and all sorts of weird and wonderful, um, you know, scientific ephemera. And I remember him telling me how he recorded Frank Tovey or a Fad Gadget. Uh, he recorded him, his vocals, inside a flight case because Fad had this song called The Box, 
and the lyrics were all about being inside trapped in a box. So Eric put the mic into the into the flight case and locked Fad in there and recorded his vocals. Fad Gadget, another character as well. Absolutely. The loss that we felt when he, he went, that was really bad. He, he was a really great character, one of the unsung heroes of the British electronic mu- movement, in my opinion. I remember him telling me about one time he'd played a gig in Glasgow and he'd thrown himself from the stage out into the audience, fully expecting to be caught, but uh, a whole audience politely stepped aside and let, let, let him crash down to the barrel lands floor or wherever it was. And, yeah, no, he said he, he fractured both arms and when he got home, got beaten up by his wife for being such a stupid <laughs> But, yeah, no, he was, he was a lovely fella and really took his art, you know, he, he lived it. He was, he was a real e-pop. Let's talk about Vince Clark. You've known each other such a long time, haven't you? Vince, we've known each other since seven or eight years old. He's my go-to, he's my mate. We don't see as much of each other anymore due to the fact that he's now living in New York with his lovely wife and son. But we get in contact through the internet, you know, smoke signals, medium, whatever it is. (laughs) And, yeah, he's been a real inspiration to me. What started off as a kind of kind of sibling rivalry, if you like, as, as kids, uh, has matured into something much richer. And, and it's made me realise what a fantastic, innovative writer, composer, programmer. He's the real deal. He really is. What can I say? I just started, I love the God's death. He's incredibly generous with his creativity and his time and one of the funniest blokes. Well, he's, he's the only person who, except for my brother, who laughs at every single one of my jokes. <laughs> we spend our life, our time together, Vince and I, laughing like drains. That's the thing. You, uh, you mentioned Gary earlier. Was that Gary Durant? His name is actually, his married name is Gary Starkey. He's somebody that I've known for a long, uh, long, long time. And we first started working back in 1998, something like that. I roped him in to come with me to Sweden and the ensuing gigs that we had in Norway and Denmark. And we've worked on and off together over the last however many years, you know. We're great mates. Yeah, we've had our ups and downs, like any any sort of uh, creative partnership. Uh, But we continue to work together. Um, We've got uh, a new album idea coming up. Well, uh, funny enough, it's a kind of like full circle because it's a musical, basically a a story, a film noir song cycle. So it's kind of takes place in the alternative future, if you like. And in in it, Gary and I play ourselves. I'm Marlo, he's Starkey, and we're a detective agency who are in this kind of dystopian future. And, yeah, we get embroiled in all sorts of things and we sing songs about them. So that's kind of <laughs> that kind of the idea. I was really, really reticent to say, oh, you know, it's a musical. But actually, the more, the more and more the idea is working out, it kind of all fits into like a multimedia thing. I mean, especially in the, this time that we're living in at the moment, the new norm- normality, if you like where audiences and performers, there's this 
distance between us. But this this idea I, is really taking shape in my head as being something that is on an array of formats. You know, it could be something that you stick in your video into your computer and it, and you play it plays graphics or videos or something like that. Uh, but it's also kind of got a live element to it. So yeah, I'm I'm quite excited about it really, and uh, and so is Gary. So yeah, that's that's working really well. It's time for a cheeky reminder. If you're enjoying today's episode, please do share it with your friends and family and share it on social media and help us get the word out. And now it's time for the final five. If you were to recommend one album or song, old or new, that you feel everyone should listen to at least once in their lifetime, what would it be and why? Difficult one, but I think just because it's one of my favourite albums. I'm not sure I can explain to you why, but it is um, The Hissing of Summer Lawns by Joni Mitchell. Now, this album was released in 1975, I believe, and Joni Mitchell would come from through, I think she was Canadian, and was that kind of female Leonard Cohen, folky, Dylan-esque, hippy-trippy, you know, clouds and things like that. This album showed her jazz roots, really. I mean, real, real kind of Miles Davis kind of vibe. But it's a really funky album. It's got some great players on it. And I kind of discovered it by accident because my brother, he likes all things jazz. And I used to hear this album blaring out of his room and, and didn't know what it was. And and eventually I listened to it because I dismissed a lot of his music. But <laughs> that, that album was great. So, yes, that, uh, my go-to album when I'm feeling like I need a bit of inspiration or something is The History of Summer Lawns by Joni Mitchell. What artists and albums are you currently listening to? I've been listening to a, a, a young guy called Miles Kane. He's a guitar player. And just can't get it out of my head. Is this track called Tears on My Guitar, I think it's called. Because it's so, it's got a real kind of glam rock feel to it. It re- really sounds kind of Bolan-esque. And that's that's really good. I like to listen to bands like, uh, you know, Lady Tron, Goldfrap, um, all sorts really, quite Catholic tastes at the moment. Name a musician or artist who has had a profound effect on you and tell us why. Mark Bolan. Because uh, he's the moment that I saw him perform Children of the Revolution on on Top of the Pops in summer 1972, I I just, well, quite literally fell in love with him. I didn't know what it it meant. I was 10 years old or whatever, and I was looking at this guy on the the telly that I'd never seen anything like it. His kind of androgynous looks. Yeah, it's just a, a really kind of, funny funny feeling in my tummy if you like <laughs> and and um and yeah and when i when i listened to his music it was raunchy it was it was rocky it was simple i always tell people that mark bolan taught me how to play guitar because he did i mean i would i i sat in a room with my guitar strumming along to get it on to you know jeepster and children of the revolution songs like that until I actually could play them. Simple as that. Yeah, so that's the person who is the most influential on me. Apart from Vince Clark. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you got that one here. Yeah. If it was possible for you to speak to your younger self when you were first starting out in your music career, 
what advice would you give to your younger self then? Be more dedicated. Be more confident in your abilities. Don't follow what other people want. Follow your dream. And I think that's, you know, that's something that we can kind of all tell tell ourselves uh, if we went back in time, you know. Yeah, I think I would, I, I wish I'd been more confident. I wish I had, I'd been more self-resilient back in the day. I think I am kind of all of those things now, but I've taken a long time to kind of uh, embed in me. And so, yeah, that, that would be my advice to myself is, is to is to be resilient, be follow your dreams uh, and not take life too seriously. Of all the times over the years that you've performed, can you tell us the one gig that is really memorable and why? Well, I mentioned earlier the Depeche Mode gig supporting them. That was that was quite a, a milestone. Another gig was a gig I played at Barclays Square. It was a, a club called the Titanic Club. And basically, this was really weird. This was really back in the 80s. And they genuinely said to me, would it be okay if we played a few tunes in between your songs? So you go on stage and... You know, you kind of, you do a song and then the ZJ will play a record and, you know, we'll do some scratching or whatever it was. And also, yes, and we've got a spot welder on stage with us as well. It was a one, truly one of the most bizarre gigs I've ever played. But certainly, I think probably the best one would be the one I mentioned to you earlier in 1999 in Helsingborg, where I, you know, I was so nervous. I hadn't performed live for, for many, many years. And Gary and I went on the stage and it was absolutely fabulous. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And of course, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Our guest next week is a session musician and composer who played keyboards with the Dams and the Anti-Nowhere League. And if you'd like to find out more, then you're going to have to join us next week. And don't forget to spread the word and recommend Talk to the Band to all your friends and family. Take care and bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>